Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, both in this room and in the Family Life Center, I want to take just a special moment because we have a special observation to make together today as we are in worship. Worshiping with us, and I I have not found her, is Vivian Gay. Are you in in the room here, Vivian? Okay. So Vivian... Vivian Gay, and if we can get a, a, a shot over here with our camera, I want to close up on that beautiful face because Vivian, this week, turned 100 years old. <laughs> Vivian, would you stand there? There we go, Vivian. All right. Can, together, both in this room and the next. Can we, can we together? Happy birthday to Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Vivian. Happy birthday to you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Outstanding. Oh, my goodness. Vivian, happy birthday from your church family. We love you. And we're so grateful that you're a part of our story. Uh, You're an inspiration to us. and In fact, I want to tell you this much. Do you know that about six and a half years ago or more, when we began streaming our services online for the very first time, Vivian was one of the first and most ardent viewers, watchers of our service in her home where she was. She had an iPad and became uh, an infomercial. We made an infomercial out of Vivian Gay. She told her story of tuning into us every 11 o'clock every Sunday. And Vivian, you might find it interesting to know that on the same week that you turned 100 years old, this past week we began for the very first time streaming both of our worship venues. This venue, the, 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 the traditional and our contemporary worship service, is underway. And how great it is that you're with us to celebrate the launch of that two-service uh, video streaming. So just in case you want to know, Vivian, you can always watch the traditional service. But if you want to rock out, you can also, I mean, you can rock out, sister. Just tune in to the other one as well. So we are so grateful that you're with us today in worship. And what a... What a worshipful thing to do, to give thanks to God for one of our inspirations, our elders among us. So now I'm going to ask you to turn your attention with me uh, to the, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Now listen to these words as they come to us from trusted Scripture. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, and be 
kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Today, we continue in our series, The Fam. We've been attempting to say some serious things about serious matters that all of our families face from time to time. And today, for the subject that I want us to fix our attention upon, I want us to talk about forgiveness in the family. Uh, Now, I have entitled my sermon today something curious. This sermon is entitled, Aftermath, When Forgiveness Isn't Easy. Now, the reason I entitled it Aftermath is because there are moments in all of our lives, there, there are moments in our shared life together when something happens that defines everything. We call these watershed moments, moments when, when it's so significant that, that you almost divide your life into two halves, the part of your life before the thing happened and the part of your life after the thing happened. I mean, nationally speaking, we think of September 11th that way, don't we? I mean, in our current era, we think about a pre-9-11 world and we think about a post-9-11 world because in the aftermath, there's a brand new way to adjust to a new reality. And in our families, we experience the same kind of upheaval. And in those seasons, forgiveness matters most. Because there are seasons that can be defined in our families as the season before the job loss and after. The season before the addiction and after. The season before the abuse, before the fallout, the fight, before the conflict, before the divorce, before the foreclosure, before the rape, before the lawsuit, before the suicide. And everything after is different. And in the aftermath of significant watershed moments in all of our lives, forgiveness matters in the aftermath more than it ever did before. Because a life in the aftermath, without forgiveness, is gray and cold and empty and hollow and can feel like a daily uphill slog. And there's distance and there's silence. There's awkwardness and pain. But life with forgiveness in the aftermath It's a life that can slowly return to color, to hope, to intimacy and laughter and joy and wholeness again. And that is what I want to talk about today. Because I believe, my sisters and brothers, with every cell that is in my body, I believe that the Word of God teaches us a way, a pathway to wholeness in Jesus Christ. And if we can somehow learn something about what I'm calling the Christ pattern, 
of forgiveness, then both we who have offended and we who have been offended can learn to live again. But you know, to have this kind of sermon, it means it's going to have to be two-sided, doesn't it? If we're really going to speak fairly about the transforming power of forgiveness, we have to say a few words about forgiveness to the offenders, those who have injured, those who have inflicted the wound, those who have failed and fallen. And we have to say a word about forgiveness to the offended, those who have sustained the injury, those who have been broken, those who have been bruised and injured. So first, to the offender. Every one of us at one time or another, despite how saintly we come off, (laughs) will offend somebody. And we can only pray that it will be very minor, our offenses, but the likelihood is along the way we will really blow it and really injure somebody. Now, so here's the good news in those moments. Here's the gospel in those moments. You can be forgiven. In in the eyes of God, you can be forgiven of your sins. You and I have a Bible that is crammed with evidences that at every turn there is nothing you can do that can keep God from forgiving the penitent heart. 1 John 1, 9 says, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So the good news is this, no matter how far you have wandered, no matter what you've done to blow it, in the eyes of God, you really can be made a new creation. The seeking forgiveness with other people, that's a little trickier. Because hearts are involved and memories are involved and the mind and relationship and allegiances and alliances are involved. Seeking forgiveness as necessary as it may be requires some careful navigation. It might be that you know for certain that you needed at this point to have already said something about it. You needed, maybe you already know, to have sought somebody's forgiveness. You knew what you did when you did it. You knew it was wrong when you said it. Or maybe the opposite. You knew you should have said something or done something, but you chose not to, and it left a mark somewhere. And you know there is a part of you that wants to go and own up to it, but there are some things that keep some of us from seeking forgiveness, and it keeps us kind of stuck. It keeps our relationships kind of stuck. Because along the way, we pick up on a few very unhealthy, um, I'm just going to call them myths, myths about forgiveness. And we have some myths about seeking forgiveness whenever we know it's time for us to own up to something, like this myth. Here's a myth that keeps us stuck. The myth says, if I seek their forgiveness, it's like I'm saying they did nothing wrong, and it's all my fault. You ever felt that way? I mean, now, by the way, disclaimer, it might be all your fault. (laughs) Okay, It might be you, completely. But the truth of the matter is many of us at times... We understand that we live in a context in which there may be precipitating factors that have created an environment in which, in the best circumstances, you made the worst choice. (laughs) And it takes two to tango, and maybe you didn't start the circumstance, but you started this thing, and you made the mistake. But gosh, if I say sorry, if I I apologize, if I seek forgiveness, it's going to come off like they have nothing to do with this, like it's all on me. 
That is the myth that keeps us stuck. Do you know what the truth is? The truth is, seeking their forgiveness is about simply owning up to your part. It's about simply owning up to your part. It has nothing to do with them taking responsibility for their part. You do you. In fact, it's been said this way before. If the problem that you have in front of you is 5% your fault and 95% their fault, then seeking forgiveness is about taking 100% responsibility for your 5%. If it's 5% your fault and 95% their fault, then it means taking responsibility for 100% of your 5%. Because when we do that, we begin the pathway to peace. You know, another myth that we sometimes believe and it keeps us stuck It keeps our relationships uh, stagnant. Another one is this. If I seek their forgiveness, I will look weak. And it will mean that I lose. You know, because when we get into this and, 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 and the person does the thing and then they react to the thing and then you react to their reaction, it's like we, in our families, I mean, the people we are closest to, it's like we go to our trenches and we start lobbing like verbal hand grenades over at each other, or, or we start to open up like relational art, artillery fire at each other. And nobody wants to come out of the trench because if I raise this white flag, it's going to look like I surrender, and I, that's going to make me look weak, and it's going to make me look like, I, like I'm going to lose. That's, that's the myth that we buy into. You know what the truth is? The truth is you're already losing. I mean, if, if that's the condition of your relationship and your family, where there are trenches and there are opposing sides and you're lobbying to try to see who wins the day, you're already losing. Seeking their forgiveness simply initiates the healing process. It simply begins the healing process. So is there someone today that you need to approach to seek Forgiveness. You know what's really needed? Is a crucifixion of ego. A crucifixion of ego. I'm not talking about letting our ego just kind of take a back seat. I'm not talking about letting our ego just kind of diminish or die on its own. I'm talking about kill it. I'm talking about a crucifixion of ego where we nail our own ego to the tree, even if it makes us look weak, even if it makes us look like we are losing. Because here's a little reminder for you and for me. We are those who follow the crucified one. And we who follow the crucified one, we count ourselves in the company of Paul who said here in Galatians, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, neither does my ego, neither does my pride. See, but Jesus Christ now lives within me. It was Christ who nailed his own privileges, his own um, sense of right, his own sense of uh, justice to the tree for the sake of, of you and me. And if that Christ is alive in you, then there is within you the capacity to crucify your own ego and seek the forgiveness of another. And guess what? It's not going to look weak. It's going to look stronger than you could possibly imagine because the cross is not weak at all. But everything that was nailed to the cross is the full demonstration of true strength. Jesus is the one who in the Sermon on the Mount said, 
I mean, Jesus, who's in you, the crucified one, with whom we are allegedly crucified, said in the Sermon on the Mount, look, if you're in worship and you're doing the thing and you're singing the songs and you're hearing the preaching and you're, you're at the altar to give your sacrifice and you remember that someone has a problem with you, then leave worship and go make it right. Because you can't have peace with God until you have attempted to make peace with one another. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If it is possible, so far as it is dependent upon you, live peaceably with all. So how do we do that? We do that through the power of apology. The power of of apology. Apology is a lost art in our day. But it is so simple that we can relearn the thing that Jesus demonstrated and taught us by simply learning three very easy phrases. The power of apology is made up of three phrases. I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? In fact, I think we probably ought to rehearse that a little bit. So will you repeat after me? Say, I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Again, but without my prompting. Ready? I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, apology accepted. You walked right into that one, didn't you? But saying I am sorry is more difficult than we imagine because it's more than just words. I found some letters by some children, written by children, uh, who were forced to, to write an apology letter. This one kid, uh, his name was Liam. Apparently he had done something to a classmate and his teacher made him write an apology letter. And, and I just want you to see how hard it is sometimes to actually truly be sorry about something, uh, flash the, the letter up on the screen. True letter. He says, Dear Brody, Miss P made me write you this note. All I want to say is all I want to say sorry for is, is not being sorry. Because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't, Liam. <laughs> Anybody know what it's like to write one of those letters, right? I tried, but I can't. And so that is what I'm going to call the unapology. Okay, it's an unapology. You're using the words, but it has nothing to do with sincerity, right? You know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, oh, I'm sorry you were hurt by the thing I did. You hear the nuance in that? It's like, it's also like passive. Passive language, like there's the passive apology, passive language apology, like, um, well, you know, some things might have been said. Yeah. Oh, mistakes might have been made. That's not an apology, right? Or, or what about the conditional apology? I'm sorry if you disagree with me. I am sorry if, uh, if that offends you. It's a conditional apology, but the truth is, we have to learn to own it if we want to seek the pathway to peace. I am sorry. That's why the next phrase is needed. I am sorry. I was wrong. 
Do you know who has the best I was wrong prayer in all of Scripture? David. King David, he gets this woman pregnant. And her husband is fighting for David on the front lines. So he, he covers up the scandal by having him sabotaged and he dies. And then the baby dies. And, and he comes to this awareness that, oh, I'm just making this worse. And in Psalm 51, the most beautiful prayer of confession and repentance, there's this one phrase I want to put out before us. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Do you know what it's like to have your sin ever before you? To be so aware of the thing that you've done and the injury that you've inflicted and the people you've hurt that you're thinking about it day and night. You lie, and you lie awake at night and you're, you're, you're trying to think, how can I clean this up? How can I fix this? How can I make it better before it gets any worse? And the reality is, you have to own it. I am sorry. I was wrong. There's another kid letter that I found that was powerful for me. It's of a little girl who realized that she was wrong. She had gone to the park and, and she had taken something out of the national park that she, didn't, that she shouldn't have taken out. So she took ownership over it. Listen to what she said. Uh, Dear park rangers, there's a picture of the real letter. Dear park rangers, I am a Yosemite junior ranger. I went to Yosemite recently and accidentally brought home two sticks. I know I'm not supposed to take things from the park, so I'm sending them back. Please put them in nature. Thank you, Evie. Please put them in nature. But the most provocative and telling part of that line, that, that, that letter was this. Dear Park Rangers, I am a Yosemite Junior Ranger. That's who I am. And yet I have not behaved in a way that is reflective of who I am. And I am sorry. I promised to be your protector. And I let my guard down and I failed you. I promised to be your friend. And you told me things that were to stay with me, but I told them to someone else. I stood on this very spot and told you that our lives would look a certain way. And I made promises before you and people and before God. And that's who I am. But I have not behaved in a way that is reflective of who I am. I am sorry. Which leads to the next phrase. I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I'm not asking you to feel better right now. I'm not asking you to just let it go. I'm not asking you to say it was okay because it was so very much not okay. But I'm asking you to create just a, a, just a crack in your heart big enough for the possibility of me demonstrating to you who I really am despite what I've done. Now see, that is an apology. And then you can't 
require them to forgive you. You can't rush them to healing. You've got to give them space between them and their God to come to a place of acceptance and forgiveness on their own. But for you and your part, you have done what you could do to start the process of healing. So to all of us who are offenders, that's what the Christ pattern of forgiveness looks like. But if you are the offended today, if today you are here because along the way you have sustained an injury, you have been wounded, you have been hurt, it may be even that today is hard for you to hear somebody talking to the offender about how to make them better about how to find a healing pathway. It may be very frustrating for you to hear that it is possible for them to be reconciled because maybe you're just not ready for that yet. Maybe the, the wound is so fresh, you're just not ready to hear about your offender finding a way back to redemption. And, and, and nobody has to tell you what Jesus said about it because you already know. I mean, you already know that Jesus said we must forgive 70 times 7. You know that. You already know in the Sermon on the Mount that he says, look, hey, the same measurement that you use to forgive others will be the measurement that God uses on you. You already know that. You already know the Lord's Prayer in which we pray, um, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us in the same manner in which we forgive those who have wronged us. You, you know all those things. But you know them up here. When we are wounded and offended, when we are hurt, we begin to reside out of here, our heart, our gut. And there are some things that keep you frozen from giving forgiveness back to the one who needs it. And, and you and I have also some myths that we buy into if you are the offended. One of the myths that keeps some of us stuck from forgiving others is this, that forgiving you means I'm okay with what you did. That forgiving you means, hey, I'm cool. We good. We good. You know what? No, don't worry about it. That's the fear. That's the myth. That somehow if I forgive, it means that I'm okay. That I'm condoning what, what you've done. And that is the furthest from the truth. Forgiving has nothing to do with okaying the thing. Because sometimes forgiveness also requires justice afterwards. No, the truth is this. Forgiving you means I am not okay with what you did, but I refuse to be imprisoned by it anymore. Because I'll let you in a little secret here. In my own journey of forgiveness and forgiving and seeking forgiveness, my own personal journey in this, I can tell you this much. Anytime someone has harmed me, nine times out of ten, I'm going around feeling some kind of way about it, angry, bitter, resentful about it. Guess what? Nine times out of ten, they're not even thinking about me at all. The one who injured you, who hurt you, they're not even thinking about you at all. And if they are thinking about you, there are some in that small percentage who will never change anyway. They will never come around to see the thing from your side, from your perspective. And so the truth is, you are the only one dragging this kind of heavy ball and chain of resentment and, and anger and bitterness. And nobody else knows it. You're the one trapped. That's why Lawrence Smead, or Larry Smead said it this way. Lewis Smead said, forgiveness is setting someone free and discovering the prisoner was you. Setting someone free and realizing that the prisoner all along was you is learning to relinquish. Somebody here needs to learn to relinquish, not to set the other person free, but to set yourself free. And there is yet one last myth that keeps us stuck 
from moving forward in forgiveness is this. To forgive is to forget. We've all heard that one, right? Bull butter. <laughs> to forgive is to forget. Right now. It's like the couple who early in their marriage, uh, he did something really stupid and she forgave him. Years later, he did some other things stupid, but she reminded him of that first big thing that he did. And all through the years, every time he would do something stupid, he would, she would remind him of that thing. And then they get to the end of their lives, been married years and years and years. He did one more silly thing. And, and then she says, she brings it back up to him. And he says to her, you know, what is this? Every time I do something wrong, you bring up this thing that I did long ago. I thought your policy was to forgive and forget. And she said, oh, it is. I just don't want you to forget uh, how forgiving I was. <laughs> See, Forgive and forget is a myth. You know what the truth is? Some injuries shouldn't be forgotten. What's that mean? i got to carry it around for the rest of my life? No. It means that sometimes there are toxic people. There are unhealthy, dangerous, toxic people in this world who will injure you, and you can forgive them to set yourself free, and at the same time, set up healthy boundaries that keep you from being re-victimized again and again and again. I love what Rob Bell said about this. He said, you can forgive somebody and still take out a restraining order. <laughs> right? Amen? Because, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Sisters, if he is hitting you, get out. Get out. And God will help repair your heart to the point that you can forgive what you think right now is the unforgivable, but it doesn't mean you have to stay in a place of victimization. Yeah. So to forgive and forget is a myth. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, let me tell you what I think we do. We remember what Frederick de Blasio suggested. He talked about decision-based forgiveness. Do you know what decision-based forgiveness is? Decision-based forgiveness is not an emotional decision because sometimes we say to ourselves, well, I'm just not ready to forgive. But being ready to forgive is kind of an emotional stance. It's like forgiveness is not an emotional decision. It's a, it's a deliberate uh, cognitive decision. This is what he said about it. It's the cognitive letting go of resentment and bitterness and need for vengeance. Think about that for a minute. It's the cognitive letting go of resentment, bitterness, and the need for vengeance. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't need, I don't, I'm not looking for vengeance. I mean, I'm not a very vengeful person, but my beloved sisters and brothers, let me tell you, vengeance plays in 10,000 ways. Because, see, there is overt and covert vengeance. When you are wronged and you sustain an injury that's significant enough from someone, there's a way to ex exercise vengeance that is covert. And, and that's kind of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the stuff that Jesus tried to undo. You know, It's like, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You talk about me, I'm going to talk about you. You tweet something negative about me, I'm going to tweet something negative about you. That's covert. The trouble is most of us don't practice covert vengeance. No, we're too spiritual for that. We practice, um, no, that's overt. We don't practice overt vengeance. We, we practice covert vengeance. Just enough to slip under the radar and not look as if we're being very vengeful. It's like passive-aggressive vengeance. 
So you may not inflict the injury right back directly, but you can withhold conversation. We're not going to talk about anything anymore. We're not going to go anyplace interesting anymore. I'm not going to open my head, my heart, my soul to you anymore. In fact, you know what? My neck has been hurting. I just prefer this other bedroom. So I'm just going to stay over here for a while. And under the radar, under the radar, we have every, uh, I guess, technical reason to look as if we're behaving just like good spiritual followers of Jesus. But just beneath the surface, we can inflict injury by withholding our lives from the other. We can do that not only by being passive-aggressive, but by triangulating. You go to work, and you know that somebody's been talking about you at work. So you say to the person at the water cooler in the break room, Hey, listen, uh, so-and-so have been talking about me, but listen, if you hear that rumor, don't worry about it, because truth is, they're going through a lot of problems. You know, they're, they're having some trouble in their home. In fact, it's probably something you and I should pray about, you know. Bless their hearts. Right? And see how wonderful that looks? But it's all the while vengeance. In Romans chapter 12, we hear Paul with these words. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And we're like, well, we don't want to talk about God being a wrathful God. But in the Bible, wrath is the equivalent to justice. Leave room for God's justice, for God to take care of things. As for you, there is another way. That other way I want to introduce to you is the Christ pattern of forgiveness. In 1 Peter, we hear these words. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The Christ pattern. Upon the cross, he inflicted every injury that you and I could have ever inflicted upon ourselves or had others inflict upon us. And he had the possibility, the option of calling down 10,000 angels. He could have turned the tide of that rage upon all who were harming him, but instead he absorbed it into himself and it was nailed to the cross is there a way for the pain that you have inflicted, the pain that has been given to you, to somehow be nailed to the cross with our Christ? Tim Keller says there is. This is what he says. And I want you to listen. If you have been injured, I want you to hear these words as, as, as strength for you today. He says, there is another option. You can forgive Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when, when you want to do so with, with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego ugh, the consolation of inflicting the same upon them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection. Instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. 
Instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism, you can absorb it. Why? To carry it around in my own heart for the rest of my life? No. You can absorb it so that the Christ who is in you, crucified, buried, and living again, will absorb it into him. And you can live free once more. That is what the cross was all about. I love what Parker Palmer said about the cross. He said, the cross says, the pain stops here. The pain stops here. The question is, at what point will you allow the pain to stop here? Because we can take the pain we, we, we received at the age of eight. And the person who inflicted it upon us may not even be alive anymore. And so we take that pain that we've carried throughout our whole life. And because we don't know what to do with it, we, well, we, we take it to our wives, our husbands. We pass it on to our children. And they're eight years old. And now they don't know what to do with it. And they pass it on. And the cycle of vengeance and pain and anger and resentment continues. But the cross is where the pain stops. Corey Ten Boom said, there is one way to start this process. Think of a bell tower at a church, and every time you pull the rope on this bell that continues to, to, to gong, you're holding on to pain. You're holding on to bitterness and anger. If you can find a way not to worry about the bell, but to simply let go of the rope, you may hear one or two more gongs. And even after the gongs stop, you may still feel the vibrations of the pain for a while until it gives way to resurrection. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, we recognize that there are many of us in this place who, for whom forgiveness is not simply a philosophical topic is not simply a sermon topic, a theological dialogue to have, but it is a real and present reality in our homes. The desire for forgiveness, the desire to receive it, uh, the difficulty in giving it. And our prayer this day is that you would set someone free by speaking truth to their own spirit, that they too can have their pain absorbed into the cross and live free and abundant and color and resurrection may come back to their lives. We pray that that would begin even right now. And we pray that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>